Hello and welcome back to Byzantium and the Crusades. My name is Nick Holmes and this is episode 11 of Mongols and Mamluks called Heading Towards Disaster. Well, the year is 1287 and the countdown is beginning to the final end of the Crusaders, or at least the end of the original concept of crusading as set out in the First Crusade, with the conquest of Jerusalem as the key target, because of course there were expeditions that called themselves Crusades after 1291, when the last crusader cities fell in the Holy Land. But all of these had a different character and motivation, I think, from the grand ambition of recovering the Holy Land that began with the First Crusade and made it unique. And I think the most striking thing about the last years of the crusaders in the Holy Land is how complacent they were. As you'll hear, there was a feeling in the coastal cities like Acre, Tar and Tripoli that the Muslims wouldn't want to obliterate the crusaders completely, really for two reasons. The first was that I think because they felt that they were genuinely useful to the Islamic world in providing trade. And of course, there was some truth in that. And as I've mentioned in previous episodes, I think the Islamic states did tolerate the Crusaders more than you would expect because they did generate useful tax revenues from trading. And this was something that the Italian city-states like Venice, Genoa and Pisa were largely responsible for because they did create an amazingly large trading network based on the crusader cities in the eastern Mediterranean. And the other reason, I think, was simply that after nearly 200 years, the crusader inhabitants of the Middle East felt that they were part of the establishment. They often got on quite well with their Muslim neighbours. And this, in a sense, was their undoing because they thought Islam would be more tolerant towards them than it turned out to be. And of course, they didn't take up the opportunity which the Mongols offered them, partly because they didn't want to upset the status quo with their Muslim neighbours. And I think that was actually a big strategic mistake. Now, I know that you'll be thinking, hey, we're rapidly drawing towards the end of the story of the Crusade. So what's going to happen to this podcast? Well, as I mentioned in the last episode, I'm pleased to say that it's far from over yet, since I'd like to get back to Byzantium, which we've neglected. And in particular, I'd like to tell the story of the fall of Constantinople to the Ottoman Turks in 1453, which I regard as directly linked to the failure of the Crusades. And after that, I'm delighted to say that I'm intending to do more history podcasts on other subjects around Roman, Byzantine and medieval history. So stay tuned for those. So let's get on with this episode. As before, I'll read from my adaptive version of Sir Stephen Runciman's wonderful History of the Crusades. Hope you enjoy it. Just as the last outposts of the Crusaders in Outremer were heading towards disaster, they gave an impression of utter irresponsibility. King Henry had hardly returned to Cyprus from the festivities at Acre before open war started along the Syrian coast between the Pisans and the Genoese. In the spring of 1287, the Genoese sent a squadron under their admirals Thomas Spinola and Orlando Ascheri to the Levant, while Spinola visited Alexandria to obtain the 
friendly neutrality of the Mamluk Sultan, Askeri sailed up and down the Syrian coast, sinking or capturing any ships that he could find that belonged to Pisans or Franks of Pisan origin. Only the intervention of the Templars prevented the captured sailors from being sold into captivity. Askeri then retired to Tyre to plan an attack on the harbour of Acre. The Venetians joined their local fleet to the Pisans to protect the harbour. But Asgeri won a victory off the Mole on the 31st of May 1287, although he could not penetrate into the port. When Spinola sailed up from Alexandria, the Genoese were able to blockade the whole coast. The Grand Masters of the Temple and the Hospital, together with representatives of the local nobility, at last persuaded them to sail back to Tyre and allow a free passage to shipping. One seaport had been spared this conflict, having already met a worse fate. For some time past, the merchants of Aleppo had been complaining to the Mamluk Sultan that it was inconvenient to have to send their goods to the Christian port of Latakia, the last remnant of the Principality of Antioch. This gave the Mamluk Sultan Kalawan an opportunity when an earthquake on the 22nd of March seriously damaged the walls of the town. Claiming that Latakia as part of the old principality was not covered by the truce that he'd made with Tripoli, he sent his emir Hassam Adin to take it over. The town fell easily into his hands, but the defenders retired to a fort at the mouth of the harbour joined to the land by a causeway. The Mamluks widened the causeway and soon induced the garrison to surrender on the 20th of April. There had been no attempt to come to its relief by the Crusaders. The next Crusader city to come to the attention of the Mamluks was Tripoli. This happened when its Lord Bermond died in 1287 and the nobles and citizens of Tripoli offered the county to the dowager princess Sibylla of Armenia. As soon as she received the offer, she wrote to her old friend, Bishop Bartholomew of Tortosia, to invite him to be her warden, but her letter was intercepted and the nobles of the county came to her and told her that the bishop was unacceptable. She refused to give way. After an angry scene, the nobles withdrew and took counsel with the leading merchants and together they proclaimed the dethronement of the dynasty and the establishment of a commune which would henceforth be the sovereign authority. This gave the Mamluk Sultan Kalawan an opportunity to intervene. It justified him in breaking his truce with Tripoli. In February 1289, he moved the whole Egyptian army into Syria without revealing his objective. But one of his emirs was in the pay of the Templars and sent word to the Grand Master William of Beaujeu that Kalawan's destination was Tripoli. William hastened to warn the city, but no one there would believe him. William was notoriously fond of political intrigue, and it was suspected that he had invented the story for his own profit in the hope of being invited himself to mediate. Therefore, nothing was done, and the factions continued their quarrels until towards the end of March, the Mamluk Sultan's huge army marched down through the Bukaya and assembled before the city walls. Now, at last, the threat was taken seriously. Inside the city, the Countess Lucia was given the supreme authority by the commune and the nobles alike. The Templars sent up a force under their marshal, Geoffrey of Vondac, and the Hospitallers under their marshal, Matthew of Clermont. The French regiment marched up from Acre under John of Grailly. There were four Genoese and two Venetian 
galleys in the port as well as smaller boats, some of them Pisan. From Cyprus, King Henry sent his young brother Amalric, whom he had just appointed constable of Jerusalem, with a company of knights and four galleys. Meanwhile, many non-combatant citizens fled across the sea to Cyprus. Medieval Tripoli lay on the sea on the Blunt Peninsula where the modern suburb of Almina stands. It was detached from the castle of Mount Pilgrim, which it seems no attempt was made to defend. The city, however, itself was gallantly defended, but even though the Christians had command of the sea, the vast numerical superiority of the Muslims and their great siege engines proved irresistible when the tower of the bishop at the southeast corner of the land walls and the tower of the hospital between it and the sea crumbled before the bombardment, the Venetians decided that further defence was impossible. They hastily loaded their ships with all their possessions and sailed out of the harbour. Their defection alarmed the Genoese, whose Admiral Zaccaria suspected them of trying to steal some of his boats. He too called off his men and they left the city with everything that they could salvage. Their going threw the Christians into disorder and that morning on the 26th of April 1289 the Mamluk Sultan ordered a general assault. Hordes of Mamluks swarmed over the crumbling southeastern wall into the city. There the citizens struggled, panic-stricken, to reach the boats in the harbour. The Countess Lucia, with Amalric of Cyprus and the two marshals of the orders sailed safely away to Cyprus. But the commander of the temple, Peter of Moncada, was slain together with Bartholomew Embriaco. Every man found by the Muslims was at once put to death and the women and children taken as slaves. A number of refugees managed to cross in rowing boats to the little island of St Thomas, just off the point, but the Mamluk cavalry rowed into the shallow water and swam across to it. There followed similar scenes of massacre, and when the historian Abul Feder of Hama tried to visit the island a few days later, he was driven off by the stench of the decaying corpses. When the massacre and pillage were ended, Kalawan had the city razed to the ground, lest the Crusaders, with their command of the sea, might try to recapture it. A new city was founded by his orders at the foot of Mount Pilgrim, a few miles inland. Mamluk troops went on to occupy Botron and Nefin. There was no attempt to defend them. Peter Embriaco, Lord of Jebel, offered his submission to the Mamluk Sultan and was allowed to keep his city under strict surveillance for about another decade. The fall of Tripoli came as a bitter shock to the Crusaders at Acre. They had persuaded themselves for the last few years that, so long as they were not aggressive, the Mamluk Sultan really had no objection to the continued existence of the Crusader cities along the coast. He might attack their castles, which were a potential danger to to him, he might resent the military orders whose business it was to fight for their faith, even though Muslims as well as Christians employed the Templars as bankers. But the merchants and shopkeepers of the seaports only wanted peace, and the luxury-loving barons of Outremer had clearly no desire for the embarrassment of a crusade. Acre and her sister ports were a commercial convenience for the Muslims as well as for the crusaders, and their citizens had shown their good 
goodwill in refusing the Mongol alliance, but the unprovoked attack on Tripoli showed them how false were their calculations. They were forced to realise that a similar fate awaited Acre. Three days after the fall of Tripoli, King Henry of Cyprus arrived at Acre. He found there an envoy from the Mamluk Sultan Kalawan bearing a complaint from his master that Henry and the military orders had broken their truce with him by going to the aid of Tripoli. Henry replied that the truce only applied to the kingdom of Jerusalem. If Tripoli were covered by it, the Sultan should not have committed aggression there. The excuse was accepted by the Muslims and the truce was renewed to cover the kingdoms of Jerusalem and Cyprus for another 10 years, 10 months and 10 days. The King of Armenia and the Lady of Tyre hastened to follow this example, but Henry had little faith now in the Sultan's word. However, he could not venture to appeal to the Mongols, for the Sultan would certainly have considered that a breach of the truce. So, before he returned to Cyprus in September, leaving his brother as warden at Acre, he sent John of Grey to Europe to impress upon the Western kings how desperate was the situation in Outremer. It was true that the Western kings had also been shocked by the fall of Tripoli, but the question of the Sicilian uprising against the French, called the Sicilian Vespers, still filled the minds of all except Edward of England, and his Scottish problem was reaching a crisis there. Pope Nicholas IV received John of Grey with sincere sympathy and wrote in earnest sorrow to the kings of the West to beg them to send help, but he himself was entangled in the Sicilian problems. He could do nothing more than write letters and urge his clergy to preach the crusade. The princes and lords to whom he applied preferred to wait until the English King Edward made some move. He, after all, had taken the cross and had some experience of the East. But Edward made no move. The Genoese Republic, which had lost heavily by the loss of Tripoli, had taken reprisals by capturing a large Egyptian merchant ship in the waters of southern Anatolia and by raiding the undefended port of Tine in the Egyptian Delta. But when Kalawan closed Alexandria to them, they hastened to make their peace. When the envoys came to Cairo, they found embassies from both the Byzantine and the German emperors waiting upon the Mamluk Sultan. It was only in northern Italy that the Pope's appeal met with any response. And there it was answered not by any baron, but by a rabble of peasants and unemployed townsfolk from Lombardy and Tuscany, eager for an adventure that would bring them merit and salvation and probably some loot. The Pope was not quite happy about them, but he accepted their help and put them under the command of the Bishop of Tripoli, who had come as a refugee to Rome. He hoped that under the restraining hand of a papal prelate that also knew the East, they would do nothing foolish. The Venetians, who had not wept to see Genoa lose its base at Tripoli, but felt differently about Acre, where they held the commercial leadership, provided 20 galleys under the command of the Doge's son, Nicholas Tiepolo, assisted at the Pope's request by John of Grey and Rue of Sully. Each of the three was entrusted with a thousand pieces of gold from the papal treasury, but there was a lack of munitions. As the fleet sailed eastward, it was joined by five galleys sent by King James of Aragon in Spain, who, though he was at war with the papacy in Venice, was anxious to help the crusaders. The truce between King Henry and the Mamluk Sultan had restored some 
some confidence at Acre. Trade recommenced in the summer of 1290. The merchants of Damascus began to send their caravans again to the Christian coast. There was a good harvest that year in Galilee and the Muslim peasants crowded with their produce to the markets of Acre. Never had the town been so lively and active. In August, in the midst of this prosperity, the Italian crusaders suddenly arrived. From the moment of their landing, they proved an embarrassment to the authorities. They were disorderly, drunken and debauched. Their commanders, who were unable to give them regular pay, had no control over them. They had come, they thought, to fight the infidels, so they began to attack the peaceful Muslim merchants and peasants. One day, towards the end of August, a riot flared up. Some said it began at a drinking bout, where Christians and Muslims both were present. Others that a Muslim merchant had seduced a Christian lady and her husband appealed to his neighbours for vengeance. Suddenly the crusader rabble rushed through the streets and out into the suburbs, slaying every Muslim that they met as they decided that every man wearing a beard was a Muslim. Many local Christians also perished. The barons of the city and the knights of the orders were horrified but all that they could do was to rescue a few of the Muslims and take them to the safety of the castle and to arrest a few of the obvious ringleaders. But it was not long before the news of this massacre reached the Mamluk Sultan. His fury was well justified and he decided that the time had come to eradicate the Crusaders from Syrian soil. The government of Acre hastened to send him apologies and excuses, but his envoys came to Acre and insisted that the men guilty of the outrage should be handed over to him for punishment. A council was called by the constable Amalric at it, the Grand Master of the Temple arose and advised that all the Christian criminals that were then in the jails of Acre should be delivered to the Sultan's representatives as the perpetrators of the crime. But public opinion would not allow the dispatch of Christians to certain death at the hands of the infidel. The Mamluk Sultan's ambassadors received no satisfaction. Instead, there was a half-hearted attempt to prove that some of the Muslim merchants were guilty of starting the riot and an attempt to fix the blame on them. Kalawan's answer was to resort to arms. A debate between his lawyers satisfied him that he was legally justified in breaking the truce. He kept his plan secret while he mobilised the Egyptian army. The Syrian army under Rukhanadin Toksu, governor of Damascus, was ordered to move to the coast of Palestine near Caesarea and to prepare siege engines. It was given out that the destination of the expedition was in in Africa, but once again the Emir Al Fakri warned William of Beaujeu and the Templars of the Sultan's real intentions. William passed on the warning, but as had happened at Tripoli, no one was willing to believe him. He sent an envoy to Cairo on his own initiative. Kalawan offered to spare the city in return for as many Venetian sequins as there were inhabitants, but when William put this offer before the High Court, it was scornfully rejected. William was accused of being a traitor and was in insulted by the crowd as he left the hall.
The complacency of the people of Acre rose higher at the end of the year when news came from Cairo that Kalawan was dead. He had given up any attempt to hide his intention of marching on Acre. In a letter to the King of Armenia, he told of his vow not to leave a single Christian alive in the city. On the 4th of November 1290, he set out from Cairo at the head of his army, but no sooner had he started than he fell sick. Six days later, he died at Marjat Atin. Only five miles from his capital on his deathbed he made his son al-Ashraf Khalil promise to continue the campaign. He had been a great sultan as relentless and merciless as Baibars but with a finer sense of loyalty and honour. Unlike Baibars he left a worthy son to succeed him. His death was followed by the usual palace plot but al-Ashraf was not taken unawares. He was able to arrest the ringleader the emir Turantai and to Establish himself firmly on the throne. It was now too late in the year to march against Acre, so the campaign was postponed to the spring. Meanwhile, the Crusaders at Acre took advantage of the respite to send one more embassy to Cairo. It was led by a leading nobleman from Acre, Philip Mambeuf, who was also an accomplished Arabic scholar. With him was a Templar knight, Bartholomew Pizan, a hospitaller and a secretary. The new sultan refused to see them. They were thrown into prison and then executed. It was a clear sign that the Crusaders could expect no mercy. And that ends this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, as usual, I'd be delighted if you wanted to recommend it to a friend or leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much. And in the next episode, we'll hear about the final end of the Crusaders in the Holy Land. See you then. (laughs) 